And as you're taking your seats, I encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 this morning. Uh, We are um, going through a series this summer called Transformed, and we're learning to think biblically about a number of topics. And this morning, we are going to focus our attention on learning to think biblically about marriage. Learning to think biblically about marriage, and I want to begin by just kind of putting my cards on the table. This is not a how to fix your marriage message. This is not a six steps to a better marriage, Um, although this may be one of the most important things you can hear in helping to fix, save, or helping you in your pursuit of marriage. I'm, I'm very aware, I want to just kind of qualify this message by saying I'm very aware that I'm speaking to a variety of different people in this group right here. There's a broad range of people. Some of you, uh, I know, are experiencing difficulties in marriage. Some of you are longing to be married. Some of you uh, have gone through divorces. Some of you are married to unbelievers. My prayer this morning is that nobody in here feels alienated or devalued or ostracized or put on a different level spiritually because of the condition of your marriage or the condition of your life, whether you're married or not. Like I said, some of you in here are working on marriage seeking, and that's great. That's really, really great, and I trust that the Lord will bless you in that pursuit. Some of you are working on marriage sustaining, and you're working hard at making sure your marriage is healthy and vibrant, and some of you are working on marriage saving this morning. Some of you in here are single and never want to marry. Some of you in here are married and wish you were single. Some of you are enjoying a really sweet season of marriage. Some of you are holding on for dear life, just trying to make it through each day. Some of you have lost a spouse. The variety in this room needs to make us very sensitive when we think about marriage and when we speak about marriage. And I want to model that, and hopefully I can demonstrate that this morning, but I I also want to make sure we know that it is important to talk about marriage. Marriage is incredibly important in Scripture, and we can't shy away from it, and uh, it needs to be addressed. So no matter where you find yourself today, my prayer is that you find this message is actually for you. And what we've been doing in this series is beginning by trying to compare and contrast a topic with the way the world sees it against the way the Bible sees paints that picture of it. And so I want to begin this morning by looking at the worldly perspective of marriage, the worldly perspective of marriage. I want to begin by simply launching out of uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and just the first half of verse 4. And when I read it, I think it's going to trigger all kinds of different thoughts in your mind when it comes to the way the world views marriage. Listen to what it says. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Just stop there. Let marriage be held in honor among all. That word, uh, held in honor, that phrase can be translated. Let marriage be seen as precious among all. Let marriage be valued and appreciated among all. And it's interesting that when the author of Hebrews writes this, he writes, listen, in an ancient culture 2,000 years ago, but listen to this, both Jewish and pagan marriages in the New Testament period were characterized by laxity and immorality. In fact, if you look at the cultural uh, stigmas of marriage then, in many ways, you see some of the very same cultural stigmas here and now. Incredible parallels. And here the the command of the author of Hebrews to honor marriage really confronts two opposite perspectives of marriage. One, which is not so common in our culture, but was very common in the ancient culture, is asceticism. Asceticism. And the other, which is very common in our culture, is in abhorrence to marriage. Uh, almost a hatred of marriage, a uh, 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 counting it out, a uh, shuffling it off to the side. And you see, uh, in marriage, the ascetics saw marriage as something that was to be uh, forsaken for the sake of holiness. And, and in many ways, what they did was they, they saw sex specifically, and because sex in the context of marriage were deeply related even in the ancient culture, what they saw was this, sex is something that is evil and physical, and it is something that does not lead to holiness and righteousness. And so what they did was they, to set aside the idea of a sexual relationship, they set aside the concept of marriage, and they devoted them, themselves to a life of abstinence, thinking that that was the way to pursue God. But the opposite, this idea of this abhorrence towards marriage, which was very common in 
the day of the writing of this letter is this idea that sex is God. So you have on one sense the idea that sex is sinful, and on the other sense the idea that sex is God. In other words, we need to abhor marriage, we need to set it aside because marriage really is simply an obstacle to us experiencing more and more of what our bodies desperately crave and what we want. It is an obstacle for us to get what we truly want and desire in this life and in this world. That was the greatest assault on marriage then, and I believe it remains so now. Marriage is irrelevant. Marriage is a hindrance in many ways, according to our culture. Marriage is foolish because it gets in the way of pursuing unbridled sexual fulfillment. I can remember uh, when I got married, Sarah and I, uh, we've been married for 13 years now, by the grace of God. She's, uh, she's put up with me. And um, I remember we, we were married, culturally speaking, I think in, in, in today's, even in the church, rel- relatively long. We were 21 years old. We got married. And I remember when uh, I was working at the time in, in the, the world in a, in a secular job, and I remember when people found out I was getting married, that the look on their eyes was this look of fear and, and this looking at me as if I was somehow crazy and out of my mind. I remember being pulled aside by somebody after I was already engaged and being told, what in the world are you doing? This is crazy. You need to be out there, and this is a quote, you need to be out there sowing your wild oats. Like, don't you get it? Marriage is restrictive. Marriage is not going to allow you to enjoy all that life has for you. Even after I was married, I remember, I remember working and people, you know, you know, people would come up and, and talk to you and they'd see a wedding ring and all of a sudden they're doing a double take and how old are you? And, and oh, well, I'm 21. You're crazy. There is ample evidence that points to the decline of marriage in our culture. I have so much information on this. To boil it down is incredibly difficult, but I'm going to do my best. Look, the percentage of couples that get married has been on the decline, big time on the decline. Canada has simultaneously, at the same time marriage is declining, we're seeing an increase in single-parent homes. A recent study estimated that a startling number of marriages, listen to this, 41% will never make it to the 30-year milestone. Here is a quote I pulled off of a a family law website in Canada. Listen to this. This This is staggering. We don't live in a world where couples of any age are expected to stay together for the sake of being married. The age old idea that is staying together because you're married, that age-old idea can now lead to a whole host of negative consequences for both parties and especially for any children that may be involved. That is ludicrous. But listen, you need to see, this is the way the world thinks. That there is an increasing wariness and pessimism about marriage in our culture. Last night, okay, to drive this point home, the Lord gives me sometimes these very relevant illustrations in my own life. I walked into a pizza shop to pick up pizza for my family for dinner, and, and the person serving me was my, my next-door neighbor from the previous house I lived in. He's a 17-year-old young man and a really good kid, and we really enjoyed their family, and so we just started talking and you know, had a great conversation of catching up, and he said, well, what are you doing tonight? You know, I said, well, I'm, I'm actually just picking this pizza up for my family. I'm heading off. My, my, one of my brothers is getting married in a couple weeks, and we're kind of having you know, a, a barbecue and a little bachelor party. And he looked at me, and without joking, he looked at me and said, oh, man, I never want to get married. And I said, I said really? I said, that's so interesting. Like, I, lo- I love being married. I mean, it's hard, but I love being married. And I said, why not? Like, why don't you want to get married if you don't mind me asking? He said, man, I just want to have fun. I think uh, comedian Chris Rock sums up the younger generation's view of marriage when he says this, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? That's the way this generation looks at marriage. I mean, they look at it with this pessimistic view, thinking that marriage is a place you go to if you want to be locked up and in prison and bored for the rest of your life. So many are opting for something in the middle. You notice this in our culture, don't you? It's called cohabitation where people choose to not get married but live together instead. They want, in other words, listen, to experience the benefits of a marriage relationship without the commitment of a marriage relationship. They want the convenience and comfort of a marriage relationship without that firm commitment and conviction of a marriage relationship. 
They want the door left open in case somebody better happens to stroll along. There seems to be not only a disparaging of marriage, but a pessimism that rejects what was once universally believed about marriage, that marriage was seen as desirable and good. This has been from ages and ages past. So where did this kind of pessimistic view of marriage come from? A pastor and author, Tim Keller, suggests that it may come from a new kind of unrealistic idealism about marriage, born of a significant shift in our culture's understanding about the purpose of marriage. And that begs the question, why why do we get married? Why do we get married? It's fair, I think, to look at it from a cultural perspective right now and, and to see right now the disintegration of marriage happening before our very eyes. Marriage is not held in honor amongst all, and that is ever more so the reason why it must be held in all honor in the church of Jesus Christ. Why do we get married? My suspicion is that many of us would answer in a way that actually reflects more of a worldly perspective rather than a biblical perspective. Why do we get married? A legal scholar John Witt Jr. says this, that the earlier ideals of marriage are slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. In other words, follow this, marriage is seen as a contract between two parties for mutual individual growth and satisfaction. That means that most people get married for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God or society. We could boil it down if we want to simplify it to the, to the bottom level. If we were to say, why do we get married? Here's the answer most people will give. To be, come on everybody, happy. To be happy. Maybe that's the reason you got married. To be happy. And so our perspective, so often in marriage, is that this should make me happy. You exist, we look at our spouse and we believe and we communicate. You exist to make me happy. You exist to meet my needs. Or we sometimes say, I exist to make you happy. Now, we're in wedding season right now, and I'll be honest with you, I love weddings. I really do. I think weddings are beautiful. I love everything about them, mostly. Uh, Every once in a while, rather, you know, sometimes in doing the weddings, I I get to experience this, but have you ever been to a wedding where you're sitting as a a participant, as a witness, and you hear maybe the couple giving vows, or maybe it's in the speech time, and and the person, you know, maybe that doting husband with all the best intentions looks at his new bride, and he says, I promise to make you happy. I mean, I just, I just cringe inside when I hear stuff like that. And if I'm sitting there watching, like, I literally have at times wanted to stand up and yell, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't keep that promise. Take it back right now before God. You can't do it. And all those who have been married for longer than 30 seconds, it says, <laughs> amen, right? Why? Why can't you ultimately make that person happy? Here's why, here's why, listen. Because you're not God. You're not God. You can't satisfy the deepest longings of that person's soul. You were never meant to. And yet in marriage and relationships, this is the way we function with each other. We expect that that person should meet those deepest needs in our soul when only God can. Now, I'm not saying you won't be happy in marriage. Let me just qualify that. Listen, listen, a healthy marriage always leads to a happy marriage. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. It's just not the purpose of marriage. That's where our culture has been derailed, and that's where so many of us, even as Christians, get derailed in our relationships. Did you know what the number one justification for divorce is in our culture? You deserve to be happy. That is the number one justification that people give. I deserve to be happy. I'm finally doing something for myself. I hear this all the time. Again, I'm not saying you won't be happy in marriage. In fact, most of the sweetest memories I have in my life uh, all involve my wife, Sarah. I can just go, I can go through the Rolodex in my mind of all the sweetest memories of my lives, the things we've done together, the places we've been, 
the things we've got to enjoy, and there she is right in the middle of it. And if you took my wife out of the storyline of my life, I'll just tell you right now, my life would look very shallow, very anemic. It would be very disappointing, believe me. She is by far the greatest earthly gift God has given me, and I'm so aware of how much I don't deserve her. That's a great place for an amen, by the way. All of you who know me are just, yeah, amen. But listen, listen, she is not Jesus. She is not Jesus. And the source of fulfillment and satisfaction for the depth of my being must be Jesus. And if I try to make it her, listen, if you try to make it your spouse, we place them in the impossible position of bearing the weight and expectations that only God can bear. And that is a crushing burden of expectation on a marriage and spouses that will inevitably cause them to implode. And you see, Christians have a different approach to marriage. The world does not hold marriage in honor. In so many ways, this is absolutely evident, but the call of the Christian is to let marriage be held in honor among all. It is to be valued. And listen, I know that some of your marriages are hard. I know that some of you have lost marriages or maybe even in the process of losing marriages. And I want you to know that I sympathize with you and God is gracious in that and God cares about you. There's so much grace and mercy for you in that. Some of you, that's been by your own choosing. Some of you, that's been because of the sin of another. And so you look at marriage right now, and you have a hard time understanding how you can honor marriage. But I want you to see, listen, that God calls us to value, to appreciate, and to honor that marriage. Even among believers today, the stability of marriage faces strong challenges, and Christians must honor marriage, listen, as, a divine, as divine in its origin and as right and good. And that leads us to the second point this morning, the biblical paradigm. The biblical paradigm is very clear that the world does not honor marriage, at least not the way they used to. Christians must look very different, and it's important that we then understand the biblical paradigm given to us. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to the very first pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2. And we have a lot to tackle here, and this point, just so you know, is the longest point in the notes, and the last point will be a lot shorter. I trust we're going to get to it this morning if we don't pass out from heat stroke. Goodness gracious. I want to maybe look a little bit more than at just verse 24. Let's back up in the context. You guys know, most of you are familiar with the, the creation account. God is creating all of the universe, and he creates mankind very specifically in his image. That's chapter 1, verse 27. And then in chapter 2, we get a more in-depth look at the creation account of man in particular. It's kind of like, okay, now we're going to go back and we're going to look at one of the most pivotal points in history, especially in the creation account. And let's just pick up at verse 15. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone and I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to, the, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord took or the Lord God, excuse me, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, here it is, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
I want you to see very clearly here that marriage is not some social evolution that has occurred over time. As the world and sociologists and scientists want to try and tell us today, marriage is something that is simply a social construct that has been imposed upon humanity for the good of society, sure, but listen, it evolves over time and and we're getting to a place where it's evolved so much that it's no longer necessary. In fact, it's a hindrance to us. But here in the Bible, we see that marriage itself transcends culture and it was created by God and therefore it is to be defined by God himself. He is its designer. He is its originator. And in the Bible's account, God himself, notice this, officiates the very first wedding. And everything in this text proclaims that marriage is a profound and important relationship. And we need to ask this question, well, what is marriage? What is the significance of this particular relationship? The Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. Marriage in the Bible, in other words, is not a consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship. That is an incredibly important term. It is a covenant relationship. Now, a covenant is deeper than a simple contract between two individuals. Covenants are pivotal to the storyline of the Bible. You can't read through the Bible properly and understand it completely unless you understand the concept of covenant. Genesis 2.24 and the preceding verses present to us this concept of the marriage covenant, the, the language that is used, the way that this is set up is meaning to depict a covenant relationship. You'll notice in chapter 2 verse 24, there therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I like to tell people, and this is not original to me, that this passage uh, advocates what we see as the picture of how a marriage is supposed to be forged. We leave, we cleave, and then we weave. Okay? This is incredibly, incredibly important. This idea of cleaving in particular, listen, it speaks of being glued together, of being cemented together. The biblical word means to unite to someone through a covenant, a binding promise or an oath. That's what the word means. It is critically important to understand this. Listen, this is so important for us to understand the marriage covenant. Listen, the way that God relates to humanity is through covenant relationship. The way that God relates to humanity is through covenants. In fact, God does not give himself, you have to see this, God does not give himself intimately to anyone outside of a covenant in Scripture. It is an exclusive relationship that is developed on his terms and it comes with responsibilities it comes with rights and it comes with privileges and you can follow this this idea of covenants through the storyline of the bible god makes a covenant i believe with adam god makes a covenant with noah god makes a covenant with abraham god makes a covenant with moses god makes a covenant listen with the church right the new covenant the greatest covenant of them all And in all of these covenants, what you have to see is this. It is God's way by which humanity can relate to him in an intimate, personal, life-giving relationship. You cannot have a relationship with God without covenant. Covenants by which God enters into a relationship with us. And in the Bible, what we see is a covenant, it said, is a cut. God cuts a covenant, or people cut a covenant. And the idea is this, that this relationship is sealed or ratified by a sign or a pledge. Sometimes it's a rainbow. Sometimes they take animals, as in the case with God and Abraham, and this is all throughout the Bible, where they take an animal and they they cut it up and they split its carcass into two. And it sounds graphic, but you have to see this. It is so serious, this relationship. And then the two parties would walk between the carcass that had been cut up, and, and it is a declaration of the seriousness of what they're doing. And it's a statement they're making that if I am not faithful to the covenant promises that I am making, may this be done to me. May I be like this carcass. Some people think that the rings and the, the ceremony of a wedding are just a cultural thing. 
Well, I can, I can tell you, the manifestation of it and the different elements that are used in different cultures, sure, certainly that is cultural. But listen, the essence of these things has existed from the beginning of time. There is a binding, legal, intimate, and public relationship you went into that is exclusive and like, lifelong, and it is ratified by symbolic means. Uh, when we do weddings in our culture, we often use a ring, right? We, we, we give rings to one another. We exchange rings. And we do this, we say, to seal the vows that we have just made to one another in this marriage covenant. And, and maybe you don't know this, but rings have a very important symbolic meaning, especially when it comes to a wedding. They're, they're circular, they're round, meaning that there is an unbrokenness to the love between the two individuals and listen, and, and for their love towards God. Uh, they're made, they're supposed to be, I hope you don't have a plastic ring today, they're supposed to be made of, of precious metal. And that, listen, that symbolically reminds us of the precious gift of marriage, the precious gift of a spouse, and the precious relationship that we have with God. And the third thing that it, it reminds us of is that it is a picture of exchange. We give a ring to the other person, and what we're saying is this, I belong to you now. I am not my own, but, but I am yours, and you are mine, and my life is for you. You see, there's a beautiful, beautiful picture and it's a symbol, by the way, that helps us to remember the covenant. So, so wherever you go, if you're married, you walk around with a ring on and you look down at your ring and what you should remember is hopefully those three things. And at the very least, it should remind you that you are in a covenant relationship with another human being that is precious, that is significant, that is to be remaining unbroken. That means you've given your life for that person. And it's a symbol, isn't it, to other people? That wherever you go, you're showing people, hey, I, I, I'm off limits. I've given myself to another. I liked it and so I put a ring on it. Right? It's good. Forgive me for the pop culture reference. This covenantal relationship, by the way, is both vertical and horizontal. So you have to see this. So when we, we partake in a, a wedding and you sit there, you are witnessing something. You are giving, by the way, when you sit at a wedding, you are giving affirmation to what's taking place. You are saying, I agree, I support this, I believe this is right, I believe this is okay. You're participating. When you go to a wedding, you're participating in this union. And listen, the, the exciting part is this, God is there too. We witness, God witnesses, there is a horizontal, there is vertical participation. I just wanna drive in this idea of covenant, and, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but this is so important for our relationships. I wanna just show you two verses that just reaffirm this idea of covenant. Malachi 2, 14, it'll be on the screen behind me. I know we're moving quick here. It says, but you say, who does, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, listen to this, and your wife by covenant. God is rebuking a faithless Israel. By the way, the picture of marriage is used all, all throughout the Old Testament and, and it's bridged into the New Testament to talk about God's relationship with his people. And unfortunately, Israel is often seen as the faithless bride, right? Listen to Proverbs 2.17. It says, who, who for, again, the context is the, the, the sinfulness of breaking that union and, and this is spoken very personally to the person who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. You, you see that the seriousness, that covenantal relationship both horizontally and vertically. To break faith with your spouse is to break faith with God, in other words. This is why the, the vows at a wedding are so important and they're so serious. Your vows are your statements of entering into this covenant. This is not a time for jokes. They are not trivial and unimportant. They are as serious as serious can get. You're making a binding public vow or commitment to another person as an enormous act of your love for them. So why is this important? Well, a lot of reasons, but here's something practical for you, because God knows that relationships can't just be based on emotion. 
He knows that they can't be based simply on emotion. And that's why people will often tell you they fall in and out of love and they no longer love this person. So I'm going to leave my marriage relationship and they just don't make me feel happy anymore. You see, so much is based in our world and sometimes in our own hearts on the way we feel. And God knows that there must be something deeper, a deeper commitment that will tie us to what is good and right, even when things aren't going the way we feel. By the way, the, the greatest example of this kind of deeper commitment and, and, and wrestling against our feelings is seen in the cross. How many times, I mean, Miles mentioned it this morning in his prayer, how many times do we, do we look at our relationship with God and we don't feel loved? We don't feel that, that loving relationship that we ought to. What is it that ties us to God? What is it that helps us uh, make sure we're living a life of obedience even when we don't feel it? What we do is we go back to the promises made to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We go back to the reality that there is a covenant made, that we have been purchased, we've been bought at a price, that we are his and he is mine. And that holds us tight even when our hearts don't feel the way they ought to feel. And you see, this binding agreement produces a support structure for intimacy in relationship. Otherwise, relationships would be based on performance, feelings, emotions, all kinds of different things. You ever hear somebody say something like this? Well, I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love this person. This is based upon the assumption that love is simply a feeling, something romantic or, or some kind of affection. But when the Bible speaks of love, listen to this, church. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give yourself to someone. How much are you willing to sacrifice? How much freedom and independence are you willing to give up? So you see, when someone disparages a piece of paper and says, oh, it's not that important, what they are really disparaging is marriage itself. That's not an expression of how much they love that person. That is an expression of how much they love themselves. You need to hear that. What they're really saying is this, I don't love you enough to close off all other options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you completely. I don't love you enough to give myself to you permanently. See, making it legal, a piece of paper, or whatever that looks like in whatever culture you might be living in, doesn't make it less intimate. Listen, it makes it more intimate. Wedding vows are not a declaration of a present love. They're a mutually binding promise of a future love. What you're saying is this, I promise to be with you through thick and thin when it's easy and when it's hard. So what is marriage for? Well, let's get back into Genesis 2.24 here. Uh, you'll notice at the beginning of the verse, there is a therefore. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to back up and find out what it's there for. It's a little helpful tip, okay? It can be translated like this, that is why, so that is why a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Well, what is why? Why exactly do we do this? What is marriage for, in other words? And what we see here in this verse is God giving a paradigm for all marriages for all time. It's a template for you and I to understand marriage. Adam and Eve, it's so interesting when you read this, isn't it? I mean, that's such a fascinating verse even in and of itself. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. You know what's fascinating about that? Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. So why is God putting it there? Because he's creating a paradigm for all marriages for all time. I also find it interesting when you look at this picture of Adam and Eve leaving father and mother to becoming one flesh as they really didn't have any better options. They were kind of stuck with each other, you notice that? This passage is so significant, verse 24, that we see it reiterated in the New Testament twice. We see Jesus reiterating it in Matthew 19, and we see Paul reiterating it in Ephesians chapter 5, quoting it verbatim to highlight the importance of marriage. And so I just want to give you four things from this text here uh, marriage is here for us to do four things. One, to enjoy deep friendship. I hope you're asking that question. Why, why am I in marriage? What, what exactly is marriage for? It's here for us to enjoy first deep friendship. You remember in the context that Adam has been created, right? 
And by the way, God has created, you know, he's created the universe, and every time he goes through the creation, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then the one place he gets to where he says it is not good is when it comes to Adam, and specifically to Adam being alone. He, he looks at Adam's condition, and he says, something's not right here. And so we need to ask the question, why is it not good for man to be alone It's striking to consider this thought. Listen, Adam existed in perfect fellowship with God at the time. He was a perfect individual living in a perfect world. So why, why was it not good for him to be alone? The answer, I believe, lies in Genesis 1 verse 26. Look just maybe across the page with me where it says this, then God said, let us Make man in our image after our likeness. I really believe the us there is pivotal to us understanding what's happening here. Who is the us? And and I can't go through all of the explanations right now. There are multiple explanations. Just suffice it to say, I believe, amidst all of the different answers, it's most likely that God is talking to himself here. God is talking about the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At this point in the story, in other words, what we need to know is that God is a relational being by nature, that God is not alone. God himself is not alone. So when he creates humanity, he creates humanity to image himself to creation. And part of that imaging himself is this picture that he is not alone either. At this point in the story, that's a problem for Adam. Because God exists in this web of life-giving relationships for all eternity, he has existed in three persons. So among many other things, being created in God's image means that we were designed, listen, for relationship. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I don't need relationships, I don't need marriage, or tell somebody in counsel, all you need is God. You ever hear that? The problem is that's not what God said. He said it's not good for man or for humanity to be alone. Uh, It's amazing, isn't it, that God could have looked at Adam and said, Adam, are you kidding me, man? Stop complaining. You got me. All right, enough for you, Adam. Somebody did. In fact, God is the one who initiates this whole process. Did you see that? God is the one who looks at Adam and says it's not good for Adam to be alone. The creation account implies that our intense relational capacity created and given to us by God was not fulfilled completely in our vertical relationship with Him. It's amazing to think about. God designed us to need horizontal relationships with other human beings. Now, that does not mean you have to get married. Let me be very clear on that. Uh, You ever heard of Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul? I mean, do you think that they somehow were incomplete and missing out on life? Uh, No would be the right answer there. Followers of Jesus Christ can be single. This can be a divinely ordained way to live, but singleness or married, what you need to see is this. You were created to be in relationships. You were created for community. And one of the main ways that God has given us to experience community and relationship is in the covenant of marriage. God created a helper, it says in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper. Uh, Ezer is the Hebrew word there. And the idea behind that word is that it means a, a helper, a companion. It means a friend. So when the man sees the woman, notice, notice that he's overjoyed and he responds with poetry. Poetry is manly, men. I mean, it's pretty, pretty simplistic if that gives you any hope. She shall be called woman. You know, just pretty simple poetry. Some people see the, the meaning in this poetic statement. The idea of, of you are fulfilling a void in me. God gives marriage as a means of enjoying deep and intimate companionship and friendship. Look, for you to walk through life with your best friend, that's the idea here that you need to see. God is calling you to enjoy the benefits of having somebody to be your best friend, to walk with you through thick and thin, and to be committed to you through thick and thin, never to leave your side. 
the one who knows you better than anybody, to know and be known is one of the most powerful things in human experience, and it is given to us by God. It creates this, this air of transparency and vulnerability, and by the way, that scares some of us to death, doesn't it? The idea of being transparent in front of somebody else, you know, because we all struggle with these feelings that if they truly knew me, if they truly know who I am, who I actually am, nobody will really love me. The insecurities of actually being known for who we are are evident in our lives. Listen, that's why we curate for ourselves an image on social media that's nowhere close to the reality of our lives. You realize that? We put things up that we want people to believe about us. Nobody posts the bad stuff, right, of their lives. We have this facade of a life on social media that paints this picture to everybody that everything is amazing. And so we have these superficial conversations with people, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, our stock ends, oh, doing well, everything's great. You know, rarely do we pause and open up about the real traumatic, relevant issues going on in our lives. Rarely do we open up about the pain and the hurt and the struggles and the disappointments. We're so afraid that if people knew, they wouldn't really love us. And marriage, listen, marriage smashes that lie into a million pieces. Because in marriage, you come to know and be known. You can't hide in marriage, can you? You can't hide what's really going on. You can't, not not for long at least, you can't hide who you really are. You know, the truth is my wife knows every one of my character defects in my life, and that is not a small list. And 13 years in, she still wants to go on a date with me. I think. 13 years in, she still wants to spend some time with me. 13 years in, she still wants to do life with me. In the Bible, friendship equals constancy. It equals I know you, and I know your faults and your failures, and I love you still. Proverbs 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. At all times, at all times. And what a powerful picture of Jesus Christ, isn't it? And here's what that means. If you're single, in looking for a spouse, you should be looking for a friend. If you're single, the priority shouldn't be physical attraction and physical chemistry and, and, and you know, that, that the, the typical worldly things we often search for, those things, n- none of us are getting prettier over time, right? Those things are going to fade, right? But listen, the, the deep friendship is what you should be after. There's so many, I see, I see this in so many young people, they bypass, they have deep friendships with somebody of the opposite sex, and they bypass, they, they kind of just, they look at that as simply a friendship, and they want to pursue somebody who is more physically attractive. And I'm not saying physical attraction is not, not unimportant, or excuse me, not important, but what I am saying is this, it should not trump the friendship. Cultivate, if you have a friend right now, if you're young and single right now, and you have a friend of the opposite sex, who you have such a great friendship with, go to that person, get down on one knee, and say, will you marry me? Okay, that, that might be a little bit hasty, but, but you can, <laughs> I just want to, like, friendship, companionship, that is what matters more than physical looks and attraction, right? I mean, we're, I'm telling you, that physical attraction stuff fades quickly in marriage. Pretty soon you don't care. What you care about is this. Can I be with this person the rest of my life? Do I enjoy this person? Is there a deep and abiding friendship with this person? If you're married, listen, your spouse ought to be your closest friend in this life. Let me say that again, because I know that's not true for some of you. If you're married, your spouse ought to be the closest friend you have in this life. And if they're not, you need to go to them today and you need to apologize. And you need to ask for forgiveness and you need to say, I've not, I've not sought you out as my friend. I've not cultivated this relationship with you as a friend. I've not deepened the relationship that God has given to us and entrusted to us. And I've squandered some years, but I want, I want you to forgive me. And I know God is gracious and he forgives me too. And I know in God's strength we can strive for it and we can have a relationship that deepens in our love for each other because our friendship is being solidified more and more. And if you're unmarried and you're, staying, you're deciding to stay that way, great. Great, strive to live in the body of Christ with deep and meaningful relationships and friendships. Don't isolate yourself, don't withdraw. Dive into those relationships. God can provide for you through the relationships in the body of Christ, the family of God. Here's the second thing that we want to see. Here's marriage is for us not only to enjoy deep friendship, it is for us to share meaningful intimacy 
Someone once said that friendship is a deep oneness that develops as two people journey together towards the same horizon. You'll notice verse 25 says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is a statement that relates to intimacy, and intimacy is forged with vulnerability and transparency, and there's a bit of overlap here, but, but just follow me here. You see, God created the human body. This idea of being naked and unashamed speaks to sexuality. You know, not one part of you has been created by accident, right? Man and woman, God knew what he was doing, and I doubt that God was up in heaven one day, and he looked down at Adam and Eve messing around in the Garden of Eden and said, whoa, what are you doing? That's not what that's for. It's not what he did. He knew exactly what he was doing, okay? He knew exactly how he designed us, and you need to know and understand that your sexuality is a part of your humanity. And the world right now wants to separate those two things. You need to understand also that it's not the absolutely defining part of who you are, but it is an important part of who you are. And sex was designed to be enjoyed within the context of the marriage covenant, okay? That means that sex outside of marriage, all forms of it, no matter how you want to justify it, are wrong and sinful. And that's why Hebrews 13 and 4 goes on to say, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You want to make sure you honor marriage? You make sure you keep purity in its proper place. God is about a serious as he can be when it comes to issues of sexual immorality, especially sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage. Listen, God is gracious, God is forgiving, God can redeem what has been broken. Sex is the very means by which, by the way, the covenant that God has given us, the covenant of marriage is consummated. That's why after a a marriage ceremony, the, the couple consummates their marriage through sex. It's the deepest form of intimacy in marriage. And by the way, it's staggering to think about this. Sex is is so profound in the way God has designed it and what it depicts in the marriage relationship. It is the deepest form of intimacy, and yet it is one of the things, I mean, I I read some statistics this past week that said that um, something along the lines of maybe 1% of your marriage relationship is made up of the sexual component. Some of you are really disappointed by that. But, but listen, something that takes up such a small portion of the relationship is so incredibly meaningful and important in the relationship. And it's, it's much more than the momentary experience of sex. Sex depicts the one flesh relationship. I believe that when the Bible here talks about the two becoming one flesh, it speaks, yes, of the sexual union and that relationship, but it is, broadly speaking, much deeper than that, much, much further than that. The one flesh relationship is depicted in sex though in a very profound way because it is the place, listen, where you are the most vulnerable, the most transparent. You you are naked, right? You are exposed. Everything you are is there in front of that person. It's the place where you give yourself wholly to that person. And that is the essence of oneness in the marriage relationship. And so that very profound symbolic picture of the relationship needs to carry forth into every area of our relationship. Where you, in every way in your relationship, are striving to give yourself away completely to your spouse. You are there not for your own pleasure primarily, but for the pleasure of your spouse, of that individual. You're there not to serve yourself, but to serve that person. It is a picture of what the rest of your life and your marriage is supposed to look like. Completely together, connected, one in every regard. Get this, get this. And your marriage, I promise you, it will begin to flourish in incredible ways. You are to be one in your love towards God together. You are to be one in your love towards each other. You are to be one in your pursuits in life. You are to be one economically. You are to be one in every area. Let me give you an example of this, your communication. See how the oneness connects, the intimacy in your relationship connects to your communication. One of the most prevalent problems in marriages is communication. And your communication is affected by the way you understand this concept of oneness. You see, if you come into the the communication with your spouse and you are not practicing all those components of oneness, if you're not vulnerable, if you're not transparent, if you're holding things back, if you're not being honest and true about your communication, do you see how that affects your relationship? 
but where you are vulnerable, where you share, where you don't hide yourself, where you speak the truth in love, where you give yourself to that person completely, where you listen undistracted, where you're there to hear. Well, communication begins to flourish because that oneness is evident through the intimacy that God has designed you to share. By the way, a desire for sex, a lot of people want to relate it in a worldly sense to the need. They say the need for sex is the same as the need for food and water. Um, I just want to debunk that myth. You don't have to get married and have sex to have a happy life. Jesus did just fine without it. Third thing here is we need to pursue a common mission. We need to pursue a common mission. That's what marriage is for, to pursue a common mission You'll notice as well, before, he was mar- before uh, God yeah, married him to Eve, even brought Eve, God had given Adam a res- role and responsibility. Did you catch that? In verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He commissioned him. He sent him out to image God to the rest of creation. He gave him a job to do. Uh, he was a gardener in one sense, demonstrating the rule of God over creation. There's a sense in which every marriage should have a gardening project in the metaphorical sense. And I think part of the idea of God bringing Adam, excuse me, Eve to Adam after he had given him this commission was because he knew that Adam couldn't do it alone. It was a big job. There was a lot at stake. And Adam needed somebody to come alongside and pursue this common mission, mission with him. He needed a, a teammate, a partner, and that's what that word helper actually means. When God says, here is the helper that is fit for you, the suitable helper, the perfect completer. It is the one who comes alongside to help achieve a goal. Actually, this word, the same Hebrew word, is used of God in the Psalms on multiple occasions where God is said to be my helper, In other places, it's used for military reinforcements without which an army would be utterly crushed. It doesn't mean an employee or an an assistant to be bossed around by you. It doesn't mean to be a, a mat to be walked all over. It doesn't mean somebody who exists to just make your life better and easier. It is a helper that is suitable, meaning someone who is equal, a partner, that you trust for the sake of joining together in a common calling and mission. It's a partner that God has given you to do some gardening. All healthy marriages are built on a calling. And if the point of marriage, listen, just think about this reality. If the point of marriage is your marriage, it will eventually collapse in upon itself. Over time, it will self-destruct. Look, you can only stare into each other's times, into each other's eyes, excuse me, at a coffee shop for so long. At some point, you actually have to get up and do something. Marriage is a means to an end. And we don't often think of marriage this way, meaning this, that it, it exists for something far larger than itself. I'm not suggesting that you need to have the particulars figured out of what exactly that thing is that God has called you to. That's not my, my sense here, what the sense of the text necessarily is either. At the very least, you better be able to say that your calling is to live for God in his glory. That God has brought you a partner, not to live for yourself, but to live for him. It better be that God has called you to know and to love him. It better be that God has called you to seek him first in his kingdom, in his righteousness. If you're not married yet, let me encourage you, don't marry someone who shows little or no interest in God and his kingdom. For sure don't marry an unbeliever. That's bad news and that's unbiblical. For sure don't marry somebody who doesn't hold to the very same purpose of life that you do. But listen, some of your marriages right now may be struggling because you've become far too busy building your own kingdom instead of focusing on God's kingdom. Even in your marriages, you've become more individual than one, you're building your own career, you're focusing on your family, you're focusing on the kids, you're focusing on your own hobbies, maybe even you're focusing on your own ministry. And God is saying you're not one in this common mission with me. And God is saying you need to recalibrate, you need to come together, and you need to get on the same page in what you're pursuing, and that's me and my kingdom. Marriage is a partnership in pursuit of God and his kingdom. fourth thing here, really quickly, is to establish structure for family. 
God told Adam and Eve, he gave them the mandate to go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to increase in number. See, family is the building block of society as a whole. God is Father, by the way, we see this depicted in in all throughout Scripture. God is seen as Father. We are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. Marriage was seen as being given by God, not merely to Christians, but to benefit the entirety of humanity. It is a lifelong marriage seen as creating the only kind of social stability in which children could grow and thrive. In God's common grace, society and culture can only function with stability when marriage is upheld and honored by all. Children cannot flourish as well in any other kind of environment. This is the why. And we are marching through this quickly. This is the why, but there's one problem. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. And while God gives us the the paradigm in the Garden of Eden, we know this, that Genesis 2 was beautiful, but it was a very short-lived moment. Think about it. They had, think this is amazing to think about it, for a little while, I'm not sure how long that was, I don't think it was too long, they had the perfect marriage. No fighting, no disagreements, perfect communication, sacrificial love all the time. Did you ever look at a couple, you know, who appears to have it all together and, you know, they're, they're, they just look like the perfect couple and inside, you know, maybe you and your spouse like, oh, look at that, oh, the perfect couple's here. That was them. <laughs> but for real, like, they had it all together. And then all of a sudden, in their foolishness, they rebelled against God. And sin enters in and fractures the universe. And the one thing it fractures more than anything else is the relationship that man has with God and the relationship that man has with one another. Marriage is the thing that is impacted directly. What God created as good is soiled and stained by sin. In an instant, you know the story, blame shifting. Well, God, this woman who you gave me, that's the problem. In an instant, listen, blame shifting, justification for sin, obstinance, pride, distance, resentment, they all begin to seep into what is to be the most intimate, the most personal, the most joyful human relationship we can possibly have. And we all suffer from the tragedy of Eden. We are all a long, long way from Eden right now. But there's good news. Jesus' agenda is to fix it. And we are out of time. And so we can't talk about Jesus' agenda to fix it until next week. Apparently, this is a two-part message. And next week, listen, here's what we're going to do. Next week, I know we, we laid a lot of theological foundation. Next week, I promise you what we're going to get to. Here, here was the point, in case you were wondering, um, the gospel picture. See, what sin has so destroyed, the gospel comes to redeem. And, and in fact, listen, while marriage is all of these things in Genesis, we come to the New Testament and we find out the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that there is a mystery. There's a mystery, something previously unknown is now revealed that the marriage relationship actually depicts God's relationship with his people. Now, here's my promise to you. Next week, we're going to come back, and I pray you come back, and it's going to be a lot more practical. We're going to get into it, what it looks like to have a marriage that is saturated with the gospel and the joy of how our marriages can reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what a joy to know. Listen, here's, here's where we're headed, that with Christ at the center, he can bring healing to brokenness. He can give meaning and purpose where we've had none. And he can give us a marriage, listen, that becomes a portrait, a picture of the beauty of God's relationship with his people. The beautiful, saving relationship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we have looked at marriage and, God, we've covered so much already, but, God, so much of what we've looked at is so vitally important to us having marriages that are honoring to you that our hearts can be in tune with Hebrews 13, 4, that marriage might be held in honor by all, that marriage might be seen as precious to all, and God, it is precious to us for so many different reasons, but I pray, God, that there would be a sense in our hearts that it is precious because it points us to the greater picture of marriage that we have before us, that we as the church are the bride, 
And our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is coming back for us. And there is to be a wedding day and a wedding celebration that can compare to nothing else in all of the world. God, in the meantime, I pray that you would help us. We are weak, Lord, and some of the circumstances that we've been living in have been hard. We've been beaten by the waves of this world. Some of our marriages are in rough shape, and God, I just lift up to you those in this room whose marriages are in disarray and maybe marriages who have ended, and God, I pray for comfort. I pray for peace, and I pray for rest. I pray, Lord, that they would find in you the comfort and the grace that is necessary and needed. God, for those who long to be married, I pray, God, that you would, in your grace, would you help them, Lord, to recalibrate their ideas of marriage to your word. They would look for a spouse, Lord, who would love you above all things, and then the overflow of that would be loving them in a Christ-like way. And God, I pray for those marriages in here that need your help in desperate ways. God, would you be gracious? Would you allow humility and repentance and dependence and forgiveness and grace to just cover all of our marriages, Lord, all of our lives, all of our relationships? We thank you, God, that what you give us in Christ is certainly enough. We want him to be at the center of all of our relationships. May he indeed be alone, our cornerstone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.